we have a very special celebration we call Easter. That'll be in a couple weeks, and we want you to invite lots of people to there. It's going to be a great time. All right. We are almost at the end of a series that we started at the beginning of this year called, ready? On the Road to Easter. What we've been doing is we've been tracing the path of Jesus as he moves towards Jerusalem. It's all taken from the book of Mark. The first eight chapters of the book of Mark take place over about three years or so. Jesus shows up. There's no uh, birth narrative in the book of Mark like there is in Matthew and Luke. So uh, Jesus shows up as, as, a, as an adult, as a man, and then for the first three years and the first eight chapters, he's dealing with his disciples and he's teaching, he's calling them, and the whole question for those first eight chapters is, who is this guy? Who is Jesus? That's finally settled up at a little place called Caesarea Philippi, way up north in, in Israel, when Jesus asked the disciples, okay, who am I? I've been with you three years now, who am I? And Peter says, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, okay, you got it. Now, from that point on, he begins to move his way down through Israel to Jerusalem, where he knows he's going to be tried, arrested, uh, and crucified. Then he's going to raise from the dead. And so that's what we call it, the road to Easter. All of that, the last eight chapters of Mark, take place over the course of just a few weeks. A couple weeks ago, we actually brought him into Jerusalem, and so now for the last uh, couple of weeks and for the next couple of weeks, we're talking about that week, that one week. We call it Passion Week, and here's what's already happened in that Passion Week. That's that last week in Jesus' life. More is known about that week in Jesus' life than all the other weeks put together, okay? Many of the Gospels spend almost half their time in that one week, okay? Here's what's already happened. On Sunday, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, we call it the triumphal entry. That's when he came in, looked around, and left, went back to Bethany. Monday morning, because he's spending the night at Bethany, he's not sleeping anywhere around the temple area, because at nighttime, he would be vulnerable, he could be arrested. During the day, with all the crowds around, they couldn't possibly arrest him. At night, he's vulnerable, so he goes back to Bethany every single night, where he spends the night, then he comes back to Jerusalem. So he gets there on Sunday, he kind of looks around, it's late, he knows what's going to happen. Nobody else really knows what's going to happen. He goes back to Bethany. The next morning, Monday, he gets up. Remember, that's a couple weeks ago. And all these, by the way, are on, online. If you want to take a look at www.salemfirst.com, go to the podcast. We have most of the sermons dating back about almost five years right there. Definitely these are there right here if you want to listen to those. Monday, he gets up on his way up to Jerusalem. He's hungry, sees the fig tree, no frigs, curses the fig tree. There's a whole reason behind that. Can't go into it. Listen to the sermon. Ready? Then he goes up, and that's when he clears the temple. And then when he's done with that, what does he do? He goes back to Bethany Monday night. Tuesday morning, gets up. As they're going back to Jerusalem, that's when, he cur- that's when they see that the fig tree that he cursed the day before is withered. We dealt with that last Sunday in last Sunday's sermon. So again, you can listen to that one. Then after that, he moves into Jerusalem, and that's where we are today. This is Tuesday in Jerusalem. And Jesus is going to have one of those days. Have you ever had one of those days? I mean, just a really, every time you turn around, someone is on your case about something. Why did you do this? And why can't you get it right? And when are you going to grow up? And when are you going to do this and that all day long? Jesus is about to have one of those days. A day when he feels like he has to explain himself all day long. This is the day where the Pharisees, Sadducees, the Herodians, the political rulers of the day finally get to challenge Jesus in front of the crowds. We're going to see how he handles it. As a matter of fact, we have a, a, a title for this particular message. It's called Four Questions and an Offering. 
Because this whole thing is built around four questions, and it's a long passage. I'm not going to read all of it. We don't have time to read all of it. We're going to kind of highlight a little bit. It's all built around four questions and an offering. He's going to be challenged. They're going to try to make him look like a fool. People will attempt to embarrass him in front of large crowds. But in the end, before this day is done, Jesus is going to reveal to us what being a Christ follower is all about. Before he leaves Jerusalem and goes back to Bethany Tuesday night, Jesus is going to tell us exactly what it means to be a Christ follower. Ready? Here we go. They arrived again in Jerusalem while Jesus, remember, saw the fig tree? There it was. Now they leave the fig tree on the way to Jerusalem. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders came to him, and I heard it. Here's the first question, question number one. Ready? By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you the authority to do this? Who do you think you are, Jesus? That you would come in here and do these things and teach the... What a way to start your day, huh? You just want to walk around your father's temple and enjoy and bam, instantly hit. Who do you think you are, big guy? When your day starts like that, when the boss pulls you into your office and asks questions, you know it's going to be one of those days. And Jesus is going to have one of those days. They're going to challenge him all day long. And they are the educated, the experienced, they are the political and religious authority in the land. And probably, don't think for one minute that they're stupid, probably they could argue any one of us right into the ground. They knew their stuff so well. But Jesus isn't just anyone, is he? Now they're about to argue with God, and I'm going to give you a little clue. This is a freebie. You can write it down if you want to. If you want to argue with God, be prepared to lose. All right? Just that simple. You won't win. If you want to do what you can, our Father's very patient and loving, but you're not going to win. This is how Jesus handles that question. Jesus replied, here they said, okay, who, who do you think you are? Jesus replied, well, I'll ask you a question. Answer me and I'll tell you what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. Now they're in trouble. See, here's what happens when you argue with God. Now you're going to be in trouble. Because they understand what's behind this whole question. See, if, if they come back and they say, well, his, his baptism was from God, then Jesus is going to say, then why didn't you listen to him? And they're going to look like idiots in front of the whole crowd. But if they come back and say, um, well, no, 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 it was just man. It wasn't God. God had nothing to do with it. He was, he was just human, and, and his baptism was from men. Then all the crowds are going to turn on them. Because the crowds thought that John was a prophet. And the one thing the Pharisees and the leaders and the rulers of the law really wanted was the approval of the crowd because that's where they got their power. So they give a good political answer. By the way, I hope maybe some of you have been watching the debates that have been going on in, uh, on TV for the political... Uh, I'm trying to stay away from it all. But we got the same thing going on here. Same sort of political debate and, and trying to understand uh, and how to, how to phrase things and how to misspeak and how to say things in just a way that you're going to get the best. Out. This has been going on for thousands of years. So they give you the best political answer that they can. We don't know. Which is a lie, by the way. Because they didn't believe in John at all. They lied. But they knew that if they told the truth, they'd lose the crowds. 
So they, they go political. Well, we just don't know about John. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said, well, then neither will I tell you what authority I'm doing these things. Wonderful. He doesn't fall for it at all. Puts it right back on them and says, look, if you're not going to be honest with me, then I don't have time for you. Take a hike. That's question number one. Who do you think you are? Now we go to question number two. Because they're not done. Later, they sent some of the fairs. Who are they? The people who already asked them questions thought that they nailed them just like that and they got nailed. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. Okay? This is what this whole day is about. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. Ever been buttered up that way? You know, Someone would come, Oh, you're just so wonderful. And sometimes in our ego, we, we hear that. We know that there's something else coming. Jesus, of course, sees right through them. We go on. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Now that they buttered him up, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Now to understand this, you have to realize that Scripture tells us this was coming from a group called the Pharisees and the Herodians. There were three main political parties of Jews in that time. There were the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sadducees. Those were the uh, Republicans, Democrats, and I don't know, uh, Tea Party. I have no idea who it is. Three independent little political parties that all vying for power. Things like this had their own different beliefs. The Herodians and the, um, the Sadducees really relied on Rome for their power and authority. So they were really big. While they didn't like Rome, it was through Rome that they got their power and authority. They have a strong alliance with Rome. And so they come with Jesus, to Jesus with what we would call today a gotcha question. You know what a gotcha question is? A gotcha question is one of those that you ask that no matter how they answer, they're going to be in trouble. It's like someone walking up to you, men, and saying, tell me, have you stopped beating your wife yet? Now, if you say yes, oh, so you did beat your wife. If you say no, oh, so you're still beating your wife. How do you answer that one? That's a gotcha question. And some people are really good at gotcha In fact, sometimes gotcha questions work in our benefit because Jesus just used a gotcha question with a question before, didn't he? He said, I'll ask you a question. John's baptism from God and men, that's a gotcha question. You're, you're toast no matter how you answer. So the best thing is you don't answer. They come with that gotcha question. Because if Jesus says, yes, pay taxes, they'll turn to all the crowds and say, see, he's not on your side. He's on the side of Rome. And everybody thought the Messiah would come and kick out the Romans. But if he says, no, don't pay taxes, they'll go to the authorities and say, see, Jesus is preaching sedition. Go arrest him. And they think they got him. But Jesus is God. And he sees right through them. We'll go on. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought in the coin, and he asked them, whose portrait is on this? Whose in, who's inscription? Caesar's. Every coin back then had a little picture of, of Caesar and a little inscription that would actually say divine Caesar right on it. Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed. 
he never really said much, did he? He just said, look, the coin belongs to Caesar. As a matter of fact, back in those days in particular, every coin of the realm actually belonged to Caesar. It was his. You got to use it, but it belonged to him. So Jesus looks at this coin and says, it belongs to Caesar, it's his. Give him what is due him, but give God what's due God. And they're amazed. Now, they're not done, because that's question number two. Now we come to question number three. Someone else takes over. It's like tag team wrestling, you know. One guy comes in and he asks a question, he gets bested, and somebody taps on the shoulder and goes in with another question, and he gets bested. Now we got question number three coming in. Someone trying to get the best of Jesus. This time, it's the Sadducees. Now, let me see if I can explain to you what the Sadducees were all about. The Herodians and the uh, Pharisees were very much a political parties that relied on Rome for their authority. Sadducees were very interesting because they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in a heaven. They didn't believe in eternal life. They believed that when you died, that was it. Which, by the way, while we know is incorrect, you have to really admire them. Why did they serve God if they didn't believe in anything else? If you didn't believe, if you were convinced that there was absolutely no heaven, if you were convinced that there was no eternal life, that this is all there is, would you serve God? Or would you be out there living it up, doing what you want to do? Because let's face it, the same fate goes to every The Sadducees served God, but didn't believe in the resurrection. Interesting, isn't it? And they thought they had this great scenario where they would be able to prove to Jesus that there is no resurrection, couldn't possibly happen. So they tell him a little story. And here's the story. Okay, if there is a resurrection, here's what happens. A man, a woman marries a man, but before they have any children, he dies. Now, what she does is then she marries his brother. And they don't have any kids, and then he dies. And so she marries another brother of theirs. And they don't have any kids, and then he dies. And then she marries another brother. She goes through seven brothers. All of them die, no kids. Nobody ever addresses why this woman is a widow maker, but that's a different part of the story. <laughs> anyway, so they think they got him. Here's the question, question number three. At the resurrection, there is a resurrection. I'm going to prove to you how stupid that whole idea they think. Whose wife will she be since she was married to all? Do they share her up there? Is she the wife of just the one? You see, Jesus, how silly the whole idea of a resurrection is. We just proved to you it couldn't possibly happen. Gotcha! Jesus, however, is God. And remember what I told you right off the bat? If you're going to argue with God, you better be prepared to what? Lose. Okay. Jesus replied, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? You're a bunch of idiots. You think you know what you're talking about, and you know what? You don't have a clue. You don't know the Bible, and you don't know the power of God. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. But then he goes on. And here's one where he actually does answer. 
Now about the dead rising, have you not read the book of Moses and the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? And they said, well, yeah, I've heard that. Then he says this, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. You see what he did? He says, first of all, let me correct your theology. You're thinking that, that life up there will just continue like life down here, and it's not. You just don't understand. But of course, Jesus spent all eternity up there. He created it all. He knows. And then he says, and by the way, let me show you biblically why you're wrong. God is not the God of the dead. If they're just gone, they're just gone. But he specifically says that he's the God of Abraham. Which means that Abraham isn't dead, is he? Abraham is very much alive. There is life after death. All the people we've had to say goodbye to are still alive. They're just not here. For we believe in eternal life. And Jesus just proved it from the Old Testament. Long before, by the way, people in the Old Testament believed it. But from the Old Testament, Jesus just proved it. Now, finally then we get to the fourth question. And here's the question. This is the question because the first one, you know, who do you think you are? All the questions that he dealt with so far, they all have really something in common. They're trying to put him on the spot. And they're all theoretical questions. You know, who do you think you are? What happens after we die? All the things that they've been talking about. Finally, one man comes. And this is the only practical question asked. And his question basically is, Jesus, what should I do? What should I do? And here it is. One of the teachers of the law came and heard him debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them of all the commandments, which is the most important. You see the difference? All the other ones wanted to argue about theory and wanted to argue about things and, and try to win an argument with God. It's not going to work. This is the only man who came and said, what do you want me to do? How should I be living? All the other people said, how should I be believing? What should I think? How should I live? Here it is. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart and with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, now this, this is good, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Now we're going to talk about this in just a little bit, a little bit more, but do you realize what just happened? Three different groups of people come and they try to put Jesus on the spot and they ask all the questions and they try to debate and argue with Jesus and of course they lose every single time. One 
with a very simple question. What do you want me to do? And that's the one that Jesus answers so fully. It's what I want you to do. It's what I've been trying to say from the very beginning. It's what I've been saying from the very beginning when we, when we started Genesis all the way through. I'm going to say it all the way through to the book of Revelation. I want you to do this. I want you to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. We'll debate about heaven. We'll debate about resurrection. We'll debate about all these other things. But... What I want you to do is I want you to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what it means to be a Christ follower. And then, to finish this whole thing up, Jesus ends it with an object lesson. Because this is called, what, four questions and an offering. It's all put together. All of this is one kind of idea that Jesus is trying to get across to us and to his disciples. And it comes this way. Take a look at this. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put in and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich, rich people threw in large amounts, but, poor, but a poor widow came and put two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put in more into the treasury than all the others. And here's why. They gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live on. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what it means. See, this is something that we need to remember. The question is not whether it's big or small. The question is, is it some or all? There it is. The question is not whether it's big or small. The question is whether it's some or all. Do we give God some of our allegiance and some of our love, most of it, or do we give all. Read this with me right here. The question's not whether it's big or small. The question is, is it some or all? One more time. The question's not whether it's big or small. The question is, is it some or all? I give God so much of my time. Good. Do you give him all? I give him so much of my money. Good. Glad to hear it. Do you give him all? I give him some of my attention. What about all? All our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. Now that doesn't mean that I'm going to sit in church all the time because that wouldn't be loving my neighbor, it wouldn't be loving him. But it means that when I do live my life, I'm not holding some of it back for me. When I'm looking at my resources and my giving, I'm not holding back some just because it's mine. It's all his. I'm trying to decide of what he's given to me and it all belongs to him. How much does he want me to bring back to him? But it's all his. Even what I get to use is still his. And it's not whether I'm, I'm giving a lot, it's whether I'm giving all. So here it is. What does all this mean for us today? And now we're finally, by the way, into your sermon notes. We took this long just to get your sermon notes. Here we are, if you'd like to take notes. Ready. 
We all have questions. It's all right to have questions. It's all right to even argue with God if you want to. You'll lose, but some of us just love to do that. That's okay. Here's what I need to remember. Ready? All my questions will be answered one day. They will. And I have got so many questions. I can't even begin to tell you the number of questions I have for God one day. And my questions are getting more and more, as a matter of fact. This is what the Bible tells me right here. We don't yet see things clearly. We're squinting in a fog, peering through as in a mist. But it won't be long before the weather clears and the sun shines bright. We'll see it all then, see it all clearly as God sees us, knowing him directly just as he knows us. In other words, there's a promise from God that says, look, right now, trying to know and understand what's happening in life, trying to know and understand God, even trying to know and understand what's happening in the Bible, it's like looking through a fog. I, I get parts of it, but I don't get all of it. And I never will in this life. One day when I shed this thing and I'm not using this human brain to try to comprehend, one day when I'm going to see him clearly, all my questions are going to be answered. I'll go, oh, yeah, now I get it. Makes perfect sense. The list of things that don't make sense to me right now, by the way, is getting longer, not shorter. You would think as I grow older, I would know and understand more. As I grow older and I get more educated, I understand that I understand less. I know that I know less than I used to know. I used to be so sure of some things. I could argue with you over some things because I was positive. And then I get older. And I go, well, yeah, I'm not so sure about that anymore. <sighs> maybe, uh, maybe, maybe there was a little more arrogance in my stance than there was wisdom. And maybe I don't have all those answers, but I will tell you this, I still, and more and more, tenaciously, tenaciously cling, maybe to fewer and fewer things, but to some things that I will never, ever give up. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is my Savior. If I make it to heaven, it won't be because of me. And when I make it to heaven, it will be because of him, completely and totally. I have never done anything that makes me deserve eternal life. I have only sin and brokenness and limits to offer to my Father. And yet he takes those, he uses them, he redeems me, he gives me a promise of help right here and eternal life, and I will cling to that tenaciously. But some of the things I used to argue about, well, you know, maybe, maybe I don't argue about those things anymore. Because maybe I was wrong. We'll find out. See, it just doesn't matter. I'm really getting comfortable in saying, you ready? I don't know. When will Jesus Christ come? I don't know. Will it be before the, will the rapture happen before the, the tribulation? I don't know, I, I don't know. More than that, get ready. I don't care. I really don't. Will heaven be streets of gold and will I get a mansion up there? I don't know. I, but I don't care either. Why, why would I want to walk on a street of gold? I haven't figured that one out. And mansions just have to be cleaned. I don't, I don't even want to mess with that stuff up there. 
I don't know. It's okay. Because this is the thing I have to remember about my questions. Okay, to have the questions, but remember this. Don't, I can't use my questions as a way to avoid taking action, and that's what was happening right here. That's what those three people were doing. They wanted to argue theoretically. They didn't have to do anything about it. Let's theoretically talk about Jesus, whether we should follow you. Let's theoretically talk about what happens when we die. Let's theoretically talk about, should we pay taxes, or what's the least I can really do and, and still get away with life? Do I have to do this? Do I have to do that? Do I have to do this? Can I do this? Theoretically, let's talk about that, Jesus. And you know what happens when you're talking theoretically? You know what you're doing? Nothing. It's a wonderful way to avoid taking action. It's a wonderful way from doing, to avoid doing anything until one individual shows up and says, what do you want me to do? They look at Jesus and you're not the boss of me. You can't tell me what to do. What's the least amount I can get away with and still be good in God's eyes? Let's debate the theoretical questions of heaven and eternal life. We sit around and have a cup of coffee and we talk and we debate and it's okay, but we wind up doing nothing. If our talk and our debate and our discussion or arguing is just about talking, debating, discussing and arguing and winning and we don't do anything, we miss the whole point. Because Jesus summed up the whole point. I used to actually sit around and talk and debate and argue with uh, some of my uh, Calvinistic friends because we're Wesleyan. And if you don't know the difference between the Calvinist and the Wesleyan, don't worry about it. Come see me. I can explain it to you in a second. But you really don't need to know, to be honest. Do you know Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior? Good. If you confess Jesus, Jesus is Lord, okay, great. Now, you want to talk about the rest of it? Okay. But... We would debate over um, if a Christian walks away from God, do they go to hell? And we would debate. And they would say, no, no, you can never be lost. Even if you walk away and you do all these horrors, you can never be lost. And I would debate back and forth with them. And I've come to the point of saying, why don't we do this? Why don't we just not walk away? Then we don't have to worry about it. What if we stop arguing theory and we just loved God how about that now those of you who want to argue would say that's not sufficient for me and I would say well tough I, I'm not going to argue with you let's just not do it we have problems like this even in the early church when people get together and have these discussions. Take a look at this as Paul is, is writing to uh, Titus. Stay away from mindless, pointless quarreling over genealogies and fine print in the law code. Do you think it's only now that we do this? From the very early church, they started doing this. Let's get together and debate and discuss and talk. Warn a quarrelsome person once or twice, but then have nothing to do with it. In other words, somebody who just wants to talk and argue, you know, say, look, I don't want to argue. Let's just go love God and uh, each other. No, no, I want to argue. Okay, I'm, I'm not going to, okay, just leave me alone. Just leave me alone. I don't want to argue. I want to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and my neighbor is myself. He goes on to say, it's obvious that such a person is out of line, rebellious against God. By persisting in divisiveness, he cuts himself off. All you want to do is argue and discuss and argue and discuss argue and discuss, but you don't do anything. You don't love. Or how about this one? He's writing to Timothy. Refuse to get involved in inane discussions. I like that. Because I used to get involved in a lot of inane discussions. 
we would argue back and forth and I would throw out scriptures to people and they would throw out scriptures to me and we'd give illustrations back and forth. And when we were all done, neither one of us would convince the other person. We'd just spend a lot of time in inane discussions. They always end up in fights. God's servant must not be argumentative, but a gentle listener and a teacher who keeps cool. I like that. Who keeps cool. There are lots of times I didn't keep cool in arguments and discussions because I had to win, and I was right, and I knew I was right. (laughs) So that's the problem we get into when we make knowing and thinking and believing more important than actually living our faith. To know your faith. To believe your faith. To be able to take a test and pass on your faith. That's huge. Okay? It's not bad. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But are we living the faith? Are we loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength in our neighbor as ourselves? If we're not, then... What point is knowing? What point is being able to argue? James wrote to his church about people who were really all caught up in this knowing thinking area. He says, but some will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by what I do. Tell me what you believe, but I I don't see it in your life. Is that really what God is? You know, I'll tell you what, I'm not even going to tell you what I believe. I'm not going to discuss it or debate it. I'm just going to do it. And I can't explain it to you. I can't explain the cross to you. I, I don't know exactly how all that happened. I just want to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and my neighbor as myself. See, the Pharisees and the Herodians and the teachers of the law and the Sadducees, they all wanted to talk theory and they wanted to argue and they wanted to make Jesus look bad. But only one man, one man, came and said, Jesus, what do you want me to do? And then one old lady, don't even know her name, did it. She gave it all. There it is. So what does God want me to do? Now, there are lots of questions in life, and there's, you know, we constantly have to come up with, should I do this? Can I do this? Is it right to do this? What should I do here? And that sort of thing. And, and what happens is sometimes then we want to pull back and we get into these theolo- theoretical and hypothetical discussions about what we should do in this situation, how we should handle this, and what we should believe. I'm going to give it to you right here. Ready? Because this one man who asked that question and Jesus' answer gives us this. Here's the best way to live. When confronted with choices in life, ready? If I'm confused about what to do, choose the most loving and gracious response and do that. That's it. I Now, if you want to, we'd have a cup of coffee and debate and discuss and argue back and forth, but could I just tell you, what, in the, for what? What would be the point? How about this? What if whatever situation I'm in, and I'm not quite certain how to respond, I just choose the most loving and gracious response that I can, and I do that. There's so many things that I don't know. And at times I use that as an excuse to actually do nothing. 
But when I act graciously and lovingly, then I am acting like Jesus Christ. This is what uh, Paul writes. And he's talking about all the things that, he, that he's been teaching. He says this. The goal of this command is what? Love. Which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and turned to what? Meaningless talk. And that's what Jesus was confronted with Tuesday. Meaningless talk. Hypothetical theoretical, all designed to uh, avoid doing what we need to do, all designed to put God on the spot. You ever tried to put God on the spot? And of course you have. Sure you have. So have I. Ever question God? Oh, you really blew it this time? Have you done that? Sure you have. Sometimes we use that as an excuse to not move forward and not do what we should do. When in fact, Jesus says, look, this is what I want. It's so simple. I want you to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. Oh, and I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. Because that's what it means to follow me. And one day, all your questions will be answered. That's the promise. One day. And we're all either going to go up there and go, oh, I get it now, or we'll get up there and go, I don't care anymore. It doesn't matter. Either way, it doesn't matter. One day that's coming. In the meantime, will we get together from time to time and argue and discuss and have a cup of coffee? Sure, we'll do that from time to time. You bet. Not all that wrong. Unless you put too much of your ego in there and then the argument turns into something really ugly. And also, why are you arguing this? Will it help you live? Or are you using it as an excuse to not do anything? When I get all my questions answered, Jesus, then I'm yours. And Jesus looks at you and says, well, it's not going to happen. I'm not going to answer all your questions. I'm not going to prove to you who I am. If you look at me and say, who do you think you are? Well, you'll have to make that decision. I'm not even going to tell you. You decide who I am. Now, will you follow me or not? And you're going to follow me with so many questions and I won't even answer them. Now, and I want you to do just two things. Would you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And would you love your neighbor as yourself? Because when you're doing that, you're doing everything I asked you to do in the Bible. Father, you created us with a mind. All right, so this is, we're not pulling something, this is, Father, what you created us to do, to think and to ask questions and, and to seek. But Father, sometimes what we do is in those asking and in the discussions, we get into that hypothetical and theoretical and we want all those things before we ever go anywhere or do anything and we try to put you on the spot and Father, sometimes we hide behind all those discussions thinking that because we know so much, well, that's what's really important. Father, 
one simple question, what do you want us to do? And one nameless old lady who showed us. So Father, thank you for the questions. We're going to keep asking them, but don't ever let them get in the way of us following, Father. Father, 